Joe, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Three, Richie, Jimmy, Hendricks, and John Sebastian shall not lie in the family stone. The Who. editor of Michigan Today. In this episode of Listen in Michigan, we're setting the Wayback Machine to August 1969 and revisiting Woodstock, both the festival and the film. The iconic event, which is the first of its kind attracted some half a million people for a multi-day extravaganza, continues to fascinate music fans and cultural observers, the ones who were there, the ones who couldn't get there, and the ones who weren't even born yet. And thanks to the Oscar-winning documentary that appeared in March 1970, we can all go back to Max Yesger's farm in upstate New York, where the concert took place, whenever we so desire. In August, a bunch of specials came out celebrating the concert's 50th anniversary, seeking as ever to convey the mythic and magical energy that transformed this potentially catastrophic and financially disastrous concert, no one expected more than 400,000 people to show up, into a historic manifestation of one generation's quest for love and peace. Somehow, somehow, it all turned out okay. My guest today is Mark Clegg, an associate professor of musicology at U of M's School of Music, Theater, and Dance. Mark is incredibly accomplished, and he's a brilliant historian with recent projects focusing on the Star Spangled Banner, Jimi Hendrix, anyone? and the music of George and Ira Gershwin, among many, many other things. It was so fun to talk to him about American history, especially American music history, and get his take on Woodstock the Festival and Woodstock the Film. Here's Mark. I mean, history is really a bunch of stories we tell about ourselves, mm-hmm. right? So the, and we can sort of change the emphasis, you know, we can put in details, we can take mm-hmm. details out. There's a lot of ways in which, which history really tells us more about the present, you know, than it tells us about the past. And I, and I do think there are some connections to the contemporary moment, just about the sort of the polarization, the mm-hmm. sort of about wanting to go back and wanting to go forward, sort of the fear of... Of diversity, of right? the of, other, of all, yeah, these people who don't think and do what I do. So there is a, a way in which Woodstock, you know, sort of represents a choice to work together as opposed to to battle it out. Yeah, and you know, there's maybe there's something instructive in yeah. this moment. For those of you who have forgotten, for those of you who haven't forgotten, and for those of you who never knew. By the time we Woodstock. Woodstock. An incredible film about an incredible event is back. Um, one of the interesting things about Woodstock the festival is I don't think it, we would probably remember it much at all without Woodstock the film, right? So the 1970 film comes out in March, you know, about eight months or so after the, the actual event, and it, it really sort of saves the festival not only in cultural memory but literally <laughs> mon- monetarily, right? Because the festival lost all sorts of money. Yeah. There were all sorts of lawsuits. It was a big mess. But the film was a sort of runaway success, and it's sort of bizarre for a documentary to be a runaway hit, <laughs> right? You know, it won the Academy Award for documentary um, that year. And I didn't realize that. Yeah, and it was nominated for like four or five others for sound editing, for 
for you know visual editing, and it's a, it's a cool film. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of really interesting things about it. Um, one of the things today is that there really are sort of three main versions. There's the original theatrical release from 1970, which is about three hours long. There's the 25th anniversary version, which adds about another 40 minutes. Oh, okay. And then there's the 40th anniversary edition, which which adds like, I don't know, sounds like it's five and a half hours long or something <laughs> like that. Um, and then, you know, I think probably with the 50th anniversary, we'll have, you know, these super collections of every little you know, bip and bop and, and picture and, and yeah. audio track that we can have. So it's it, it has sort of expanded in importance over time, whereas, you know, most times history we forget things, and this this is sort of an, a deeper and deeper uh, memorialization, but it happens really because of the film. Yeah, it's amazing that they were able to capture what they did and in such good quality for what a crazy experience it was. I mean... The film was pretty much a shoestring operation, too. They didn't even pay the cinematographers. I mean, it was it was sort of a double or nothing mm-hmm. contract. Like, if you came and you worked the film, and they had this big crew of, like, 100 people, but nobody was getting to be paid at all unless the film was a success, oh. and then they would be paid sort of oh. double standard rates. So worked out for them. But yeah. it, it, and I, I wonder too risky. if, if, yeah, I mean, this is a pretty early days of the stadium rock concert. And of course this is not a stadium. This is a, mm-hmm. a hog farm, right? <laughs> so, um, sort of a natural bowl in the, the sort of geography that created a space for not only the pond for skinny dipping, which was important <laughs> for hygiene there after <laughs> a couple of days in the mud, but, um, but also just for acoustically. And, and, you know, you really didn't have standard like amplifier setups and speaker setups. I mean, this is pretty early in these days of these mega rock concerts. We had Monterey Pop in 1967, and Woodstock is the next one, and then Altamont is sort of the the third of the big three, and they all had very different um, results. And I think, you know, one of the things about Woodstock, it was this impending disaster that that was sort of saved Mm -hmm. by community participation. I mean, they they expected about 200,000 people. They pre-sold about 186,000 tickets, expected to sell a few at the gate, Um, and then 400,000-plus people show up, and... They literally didn't have time to get finished the setup because they Woodstock was supposed to happen. Well, Woodstock didn't actually happen in Woodstock, right? It happens in Bethel, New York, on Max um, Yasker's farm. But it was supposed to happen at a different venue entirely. And a lot of the preparatory work and the lighting design and everything had been done with this previous venue. And they passed a law, you know, like at the last minute, saying you couldn't have a gathering of more than five thousand people. Oh, and so that, they had to find this alternative venue. <laughs> and they literally had to decide: like, are we going to finish the fence and the ticket booth, or are we going to finish the stage? <laughs> <laughs> and they decided Priorities. that the stage was was probably more important because if people had actually paid to get in, they would have been sort of angry not to have a concert <laughs> since that was the whole point. Um, so it, it is pretty much a, a sort of a miraculous event, but it's it really was about people pulling together because you you just you didn't have enough food, you didn't yeah. you know just communications. I mean, nobody had cell phones in the days, right? Yeah. So it's like there's like one payphone for the whole place, right? It's really amazing. It looks like some kind of uh, biblical, epical, unbelievable scene. Woodstock, with a cast of a half a million outrageously friendly people. Like, I can't imagine those people were so far away. Like, what are, what's even happening? Can you even well, hear anything? I like, know, that's actually one of the things I think about. It. I think probably the experience of the festival on the film was is probably better than having better. actually been there. Because, like, you know, they didn't have jumbotrons yeah. in 1969. Yeah. And, you know, so you were basically way in the distance looking practically through binoculars to see the stage. And yet the cinematography is really riveting because they, they had 16 different cameras. And they're, like, right in the, like in the face of mm-hmm. every artist. And so it's, you really feel like you're practically in the band. You're really performing right alongside. And you get this kind of intense, intimate, personal, you know, experience of this sort of high wattage musical 
performance. It really was like a high wire act. I mean, from everything you've described already with the outrageous crowds and the traffic and the finances, and then you throw in the weather and all these egos and all these artists, and it's the first time anything like this magnitude has ever happened. And you are right there with them in the movie. Like, mm-hmm. what disaster is going to happen next, you know? When it starts raining and they've got all that gear and everything, ugh, so scary. And that's, I think, an interesting part of the film, too, is it's really just as much about the making of the festival and the people's, mm-hmm. you know, the local community's response and the, the, the concertgoers' response and the organizers' um, you know, thoughts and feelings. I mean, they interview the guy who, you know, puts together the the porta potties right mm-hmm. for the I mean they just they talk to everybody so you really it's it's sort of a 360 degree you know kind of look at the festival it's not just about the concert probably yeah. only maybe two thirds of the movie is really the performances and everything else are the the people yeah and so it really is a, a sort of a document of a cultural moment rather than of a concert yeah it definitely shows you know the potential it like it revealed the potential for creating a mass spectacle like this like a how-to or how-not-to, I guess, you know? But prior to that, like, Monterey, I don't know how big that was, and and then Altamont was such a disaster. Right. I mean, such a tragedy and everything. Like, well, and the violence at Altamont is what people feared at Woodstock, mm-hmm. and it was the fact that that violence didn't, didn't happen. happen. was so shocking. And, and, you know, part of it was the... If you look at, like, the initial news reports, the UPI release, I mean, it's like disaster at Woodstock, mm-hmm. all these people, it's, you know, it's yeah. public health nightmare, you know, don't come, traffic jam, stay away, you know, people are going to die. It's, um, <laughs> you know, New York State thought about calling out the National Guard and, you know, just all of this fear. And part of it is fear of young people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's really a moment in our history where, of generational conflict in the 1960s and different attitudes about sort of love and drug use and, and sort of of behavior and sort of communal community responsibility and yeah. sort of coming off the summer of love and the whole sort of notion of the hippie, right, which is sort of informing this view. And you have to remember it's a time like when 18-year-olds couldn't vote, although they could be drafted for the Vietnam War, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's yeah. a it's a, a particular moment and a, and a sort of politically incendiary moment. And so there was a lot of fear by the establishment of what were these kids going to do? And so one of the sub-themes of the film is, wow, these kids are nice and, oh, they behaved and they said thank you and they were appreciative and all this sort of sort of affirmation of community values and the surprise that, that people had that that these young people were not you know sort of violent mm-hmm. um, and that that they were nice yeah peace and love you peace know? and love and it seems to be one of the, that's sort of part of the story we're telling about it now and so part of what I think makes Woodstock and the documentary so dramatic is that it's that shift from the disaster story mm-hmm. to the peace and love you know, triumph. Um, that really is what the movie's about. Uh, the other thing that's kind of striking about the whole event is how self-aware it was. Like, mm, they knew if we act like jerks, we're going to be right. cast as jerks. Um, the world is watching us. Yeah. yeah exactly. And people kind of obeyed. Like, it's so weird. It's, it's so hard to know what the magic was that created and it almost turned into this myth-like experience. Like, mm-hmm. was it really that good? I mean, I think part of it was, yeah, I mean, using the publicity machine and the, the last-minute cancellation of this one venue, to, mm-hmm. I mean, is part of why people were so excited about it and getting all of these these different, you know, musical acts, Jimi Hendrix headlining it, but, you know, The Grateful Dead and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Yeah, and then you have all just, those iconic performances. Yeah, where Janis was, Joplin, just sort of amazing. Richie Havens yeah. ends up kicking the whole thing off. And, and that's, I think, part of, part of the uh, video. I mean, they do a great job of, even though it's really sort of fragmented and mixed up, it's mm-hmm. a different order than the concert mm-hmm. actually happened in. But you get a sense of the artist entering the stage, and then they usually show the very last, you know, song that the artist performs. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you get that kind of climactic yeah. excitement, the real crescendo. You see sort of the moments of highest intensity yeah. in, in each one of the performances. And so that's that's pretty riveting. And then, of course, you know, we've talked about Hendrix before, but that's such a um, an iconic moment of this iconic experience is Hendrix doing the Star Spangled Banner. So... And people weren't quite sure how to interpret that, and there's so much more to it than people realize. Yeah, no, I've become sort of obsessed with that performance <laughs> and the anthem generally, but um, but I, it really started for me with this film because I teach a course in American music and one of the things I kick it off with every year is showing Hendrix at Woodstock and just sort of asking the students what is this yeah and what's interesting about that answer is that it's not just a yes or no good or bad kind of answer it's a complicated mixed up answer just like human life Mm -hmm. Um, so it's both patriotism and protest I mean he plays a a pretty you know sort of traditional version of the melody playing all the notes they're in time they're in tune but he's also doing these incredible sort of improvisatory pictorialisms you know where he's he's doing sort of the psychedelic rock thing mm-hmm. with the anthem and if you hear it without saying the words to yourself as it goes through you think oh my gosh he's like insulting the flag or he's tearing the anthem apart but then you realize when you listen more closely that it's the words rocket to a glare and bounce bursting in air where he does these these sort of firefight mm-hmm. sounds of explosions and peals of bombs falling and sort of rising slides of screams and machine gun fire and sirens and all this stuff, which really talks about, I think it's a kind of acoustic synthesis of the 1960s. I mean, you have the, nice. the sort of, you know, the riots in the streets and the, and the war in Vietnam sort of brought to life mm-hmm. in a way that then connects 1969 and I think the sort of battle for freedom with... 1814 and Francis Scott Key Ooh. watching the Battle of Baltimore and the defense of Fort McHenry and a kind of different kind of heroism mm-hmm. mainly, but it's still where the, the future of the country is really at stake for the people who are there. And I think that's that's part of this kind of self-conscious awareness you talked about. Mm-hmm. And Hendrix is interesting because, you know, with the Star Spangled Banner, I mean, it really shouldn't have happened. I mean, they didn't rehearse the Star Spangled Banner. It wasn't planned in the set list. Um, Hendrix had already said, you know, like, we're wrapping this up. He was playing his traditional concert under Voodoo Child's Slight Return. He had said, introduce the members of the band as you do in the last song. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were just going to rock out and the concert was going to be over. And instead, he turns to the Star Spangled Banner. And I think for him, it's a response to the optimism of the moment. I mean, he's in some ways synthesizing, you know, this, the hope that Woodstock, you know, gave to the people who were there because yeah. they saw the disaster become a triumph. Um, a muddy triumph, <laughs> but nevertheless something very different than the story that maybe the establishment was trying to tell about the danger of young people and mm-hmm. the fact they had to be controlled. Um, this was, you know, the largest gathering, I think, for a concert ever at that point. And you know, it, it's joked that it's the third largest city in New York that mm-hmm. weekend, you know, because so with the population. So it's, you know, the fact that people pulled together, I think, gave a sign of well, maybe you know, young people could not take this impulse and not just sort of tune out, but Mm -hmm. actually sort of tune in to come back and create a a new future. Um, And the Woodstock film broadcast that message nationally. But I mean, the people who made the film were not getting paid initially. So they they weren't there as a job. They were there because they 
they wanted to be mm-hmm. a part of it. And, you know, their success or failure was really, you know, the quality of the end result. You know, it was they weren't just being hired to document it. They yeah. were they really Get sort of lived stuff. it in a certain way. And I think that that comes across in the film and the and the editing for me is, you know, again today probably doesn't look that fantastic from yeah. sort of an MTV perspective, right? Because we're used to all this fast cross cutting. Yeah, it's and nice to have split a camera hold still stuff, for a minute. Yeah. It's you know, it's pretty amazing. I mean, you'll be watching the singer from like from the left and the right side at exactly the same time, or else they'll have like the drum drummer in the middle of mm-hmm. the screen, and then the bass player and the guitar player on either side, and you're watching three camera views simultaneously. So it's sort of a kind of a Picasso cubist, mm-hmm. you know, fractured reality. Yeah. But you're actually you have sort of this kind of superhuman sight. You can see more than you really than any one person could ever see. Yeah. So they they apparently shot like I don't know. Hundreds of miles of, of sure. film. I mean, just like with 16 cameras running for three days, you can imagine that they, uh, yeah, you know, j- just can only imagine you know. what's on the cutting room floor, man. Yeah, and it's it's one of the interesting things for me about like the Hendrix part. I mean, the Hendrix really. I mean, he was closing the film, and and it sort of climaxes, I think, mm-hmm. on the Star Spangled Banner in a certain way. But one of the interesting things about it is that th- that particular part of the film is not split screen. I mean, you just see one camera. And, you know, by that part of the FAMPS festival, only a couple cameras were working and they didn't have that much film left, you know. So they, <laughs> they sort of got forced into the, what became a very compelling artistic decision to not have the frenetic cutting and multiple perspectives, yeah. but to really just focus. Because, you know, the the uh, the Woodstock anthem that Hendrix does is, is almost just one long continuous shot. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to have to revisit. You so. know, it's an interesting film, too, because it has a little bit of that kind of cinema verite kind of aspect, you know, where they're just sort of filming... There's not a lot of dialogue. You know, mm-hmm. There's not a, narr- yeah. a sort of omniscient narrator who's telling you yeah. what to think. It's it's really a lot of question and answer mm-hmm. with people who are there. Was allowing the subject to speak rather than sort of telling, you know, putting, telling everybody yeah. what to think about it. I think on, on on the same time, it's a very manipulative film, right? I mean, it it is sort of putting this positive spin on it. It's showing the controversy and but it you know like the mud. There's this point where there's like this big slip and slide. Mm-hmm. Right? They have all the mud and and people are just playing yeah. in it. Right? They're just reveling in the disaster. Right? Yeah. <laughs> what else um, are you going to do? So there was do? there seems to be sort of a conscious choice to to interpret in a different way. But the, you know the film is definitely a cultural product, as an artistic product, but also a, a propaganda product on a certain level. Like yeah, like all artists. like all documentaries, I guess. I yeah. mean, they all have a point of view. Sometimes they're a little more hidden than others. You know, live performance is different than a recording. And so the and the film is somewhere in between um, because it's a recorded document of a, a live event. But you hear the stage banter. You hear what people are saying mm-hmm. and how they're introducing and how they're what they're saying in between songs. And and Hendrix actually sort of dedicates an earlier song in his set to, you know, guys in the military mm-hmm. you know, who, are th- who are thinking about their girlfriends. And yeah, and he you know, again, he's sort of representing them as people who have have relationships and they they, they have loves and they have a life to live and and. You know, there's there's a kind of sensitivity to that. Um, at the same time, I don't think Hendrix loved the military. He's, yeah. He f- he fakes being gay to, to get discharged <laughs> so he can pursue his his musical career. So, but I do think you you have a pretty complex political thinker. I think we tend to think of you know the, the hippie culture mm-hmm. sort of as completely drugged out and dis, disengaged, but it's actually quite engaged. And I think one one way in which you see that with Hendrix is how he uses the anthem as a kind of sonic snapshot of the moment in time. So the Woodstock film has so overshadowed every other, you know, sort of 
historical document from this era that we think of it as a singular moment. But all of these musicians played the same music other places, mm-hmm. you know. So yeah, so he played that anthem quite played a bit. Anthem, yeah, like, yeah, dozens of times, maybe 70 plus times. And every time it was different. It was never exactly the same. And and so there's something about Woodstock with the, the insertion of the TAPS quotation, which of course honors sort of military sacrifice, mm-hmm. um, but also the, the way he holds the, the sort of the note of the word free at the very end for like six full seconds, which for me, you know, there's a kind of holding on an emphasis of that that notion that, you know, here at Woodstock, we're free. We've literally created our own world. And and yet, and we've come together. And this this is the kind of, of freedom that America is about. Yeah, I was and, just going to say, it's just profoundly American. Yeah, there is, I think, a tendency to feel disempowered these days. And you look back at, like, just campus culture in the 1960s and the Port Huron Statement Mm -hmm. and Students for a Democratic Society. And, you know, part of the fear of all these kids getting together for a rock concert was the political activism that had been a prelude Mm -hmm. to that. So, you know, for me, in some ways, I think of Woodstock as a kind of capstone on the 60s, more so than it didn't sort of much, wasn't the start of something as much as it was the kind of summary of something and uh, wow, that's an interesting thought. I never thought of it that way. Yeah, I mean, Hendrix, the Star Spangled Banner wasn't so much, you know, like a, a rocketing protest. People already hated the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, it that's wasn't, true. It wasn't, you know, the Tet Offensive had been several years mm-hmm. earlier, and that's really when public opinion shifted. So I, you know, but it's and I think if there's a sad thing about Woodstock, yeah, it is that it it was more of the the almost the, the the final chapter rather than the beginning. So tapping into that notion of of sort of the power of the collective, the fact that the community can come together and do its own thing, I mean, might be something we have to, to learn from that. Well, thanks so much for listening. I saw the movie for the first time in Quebec City when I was just 13. I was visiting my brother there, and this was the only film in English in the entire town. I must say it left quite an impression. I am married to a musician, after all. Anyway, come back next time when I speak to Tiffany Eng, the University Carolineur who plays the bells in the Burton and Lurie Towers here. And don't forget to subscribe to Listen in Michigan at Google Play Music, iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. And if you're at iTunes, give us a rating. Make it a good one, too, okay? <laughs> Find us at michigantoday.umich.edu under the podcast tab. Till next time, as always, go blue.